This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They've survived the violence of war and political oppression. Women from around the world are in Colorado to share their struggles and successes as they work to create social change. Plus, a longtime Denver landmark raises the question, when is something historic and when is it nostalgic? I think there's a distinct difference. You know, when I drive around the area and I see a building with the stonework and built in, you know, the 1800s and it's these big old mansions, I say, now that's historic. Then a unified statement about cruising and the cultural significance it holds for one neighborhood in particular. And a refuge in Colorado that's moved well beyond its original mission. We went out there to help wolves, and the long and short of it, it's helping people a lot more. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. In Syria, when Raja Altali was 12 years old, she saw her father arrested for being an activist. Years later, her sister was forced out of the country for her work as a human rights lawyer. Despite that, Altali still fights for peace in her home country, and now she's here in Colorado to continue that work. Welcome to the program, Raja. Thank you. You're the co-founder of the Center for Civil Society and Democracy that aims to create peace in Syria. You're also one of 16 women from 15 countries around the world who are in Colorado right now, focused on social change and international women's leadership. It's part of the University of Denver's Summer Institute. Marie Berry is a professor at the University of Denver and the Institute's director. Hi, Marie. Hi. Thanks so much for having us. Marie, we'll talk about that institute's mission in a moment. But first, Raja, when you've just arrived in Colorado from Turkey, you were a young girl when your father was arrested for political reasons in Syria. You decided at that point not to be politically active, but you've changed your mind. So when the Syrian revolution started in 2011, I was doing my PhD in mathematics at Northeastern University in Boston. But like seeing many Syrians took the street like very courageously and they were like calling for freedom and democracy and dignity in Syria. I couldn't stop uh, like supporting. I couldn't stop myself from starting documenting human rights violations, especially for the people who were arrested, especially for the children who were detained. And some of them, they were like even tortured and some like until now they are missing and some were killed under torture. So from that, it was like, I think all the memory which came to my mind when my father was arrested, we didn't see him for one whole year and he was severely tortured. It all came to my mind and I thought like Syrian people, including my family and the rest, like we really deserve better life in Syria and no one should be arrested and no one all all around the world and in Syria, no one should be tortured or detained. And this is where like I'm really committed to make sure that like especially women are uh, like not faced uh, that detention or to be like a family member of detained people. So we are working towards that. Your work, it focuses in Syria. And like we've said, you're originally from Syria, where civil war has been tearing apart the country for eight years. But what brought you to Turkey? 
So when, as I said, when the Syrian revolution started, I was doing my PhD in mathematics at Northeastern University. And at that time, I decided to be closer to the region. Unfortunately, I'm not able to go inside Syria because the threat is mm, for detention is happening. I'm vocally mm, talking ab uh, about like a human right violation mm, committed by the Syrian government and other actors inside Syria. But in the same time, as I'm co-director for Center for Survival, society and democracy, we have team members who are all around the country in Syria and also in the neighboring country mm, who are working with the Syrian refugee, who are working with the Syrian stakeholders in order to strengthen civil society, working with women in um, big networks and supporting the network in order to mm, respond to the local uh, needs of the local communities. Specifically, mm, I mean, I'm sure you are hearing about like the severe bombing that like Idlib is uh, facing at the moment and like women are doing really an important job in like responding to that mm, IDP that is happening all the time but also mm, uh, doing the work of that mm, uh, needed humanitarian response for that and as you mm, can tell there are many hospitals many schools who are bombed by the Syrian government and also by Russia in that town and mm, I'm, I'm proud of all the women who are like courageous, Syrian women who are courageous to tell their story in Idlib and elsewhere inside Syria. And locating yourself in Turkey helps you be closer regionally with, while being a little bit safer from detention. You champion human rights work. Tell me a little bit more about that. <clears throat> so, like, we are focusing mainly on four area on human rights as CCSD. The first one, it's mm, on the detention. So we've been, like, uh, making sure that the voice of the families of the people who are missing are heard. And recently there was, like, a hearing from in the Security Council by the fam member, like, two amazing Syrian women who tell the story of their family members uh, in the Security Council. And this is like an important testimony that like people needs to hear it and I encourage everyone to hear it, to listen to it. The second one, it's bombing that like no one should be ever like subjected to bombing by their own country and by their own government like air bombing. Like sometimes it's more than 60 bombs per minute and even much more so this is like war crimes and war ag crimes against the humanity that is happening in Syria the third one it's siege like many people have been subjected to siege in Syria and especially women like we we heard her story about what happened for women and children like in sieged area and the fourth it's demographic change so those are the main issue that like we are trying to focus on and it does doesn't mean that they are only uh, they are the only uh, issue. For example, the chemical attack that was subject that was committed by the Syrian government in uh, 2013 and later, it's also an important issue. But those are the human rights uh, themes that we are focusing on in Syria. Mm. Marie, you focus on women activists who face war and violence. According to the Security Council of the United Nations, women suffer disproportionately during and after war because they're the most vulnerable to sexual violence and exploitation. What inspired you to join this line of work? 
Well, I have been convinced over my career as a sociologist and as an academic that women do exactly what Raja said, that they are more creative and resilient in situations of tremendous suffering and destruction, and that they offer the the best chance, really, for um, places that have been affected by armed conflict to rebuild and to create more more just and democratic societies. And you share publicly that you grew up in an abusive household. How do you think that that background informs what you do? I think that's a it's a it's a question that really started, I think, when my father was was drafted into the U.S. Army when he was 18 years old and sent to fight in Vietnam. And the reverberations of that trauma and that exposure to violence in my own life and in you know, my own family um, have convinced me over and over again that trauma that is not transformed is transferred and that there is a is a profound need to to better understand how we prevent armed conflict and war because these these situations that our globe has been experiencing and certainly um, our own country has been a part of um, don't end when the bullets stop flying. They continue to persist and to embed themselves into people's lives for, for decades and even generations to come. And tell me more about these women who are here in Colorado for this discussion. What types of things have they had to overcome? What kinds of trauma are they confronting? The women that participate in the Inclusive Global Leadership Initiative's annual Summer Institute are coming from all over the world, and they are just the most tremendous frontline activists um, that you could imagine. They are coming from situations of, of tremendous, oftentimes tremendous violence, um, situations of, of active war, um, of um, living in authoritarian regimes, of, of living in uh, contexts that are um, extremely patriarchal and oftentimes racist, and and they experience that that violence in in their in their lives on a regular basis. And so, what each of these women are doing that is so amazing to me is they have decided, as Raja mentioned a, a minute ago, they have decided that 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 enough is enough, and that they are not going to stand by while another conflict happens or while this violence continues, and they are going to do something about it. And so these women are are really um, mobilizing uh, to resist um, systems of oppression and forms of violence wherever they exist. And they're coming from contexts as varied as as Nicaragua and um, Uganda and South Africa and the Philippines. They're coming from all over. And they what what I think we really believe um, in in this institute is that while there's so much difference in in people's experiences, there's also so much that's shared. And that these activists coming together are able to really identify their shared um, experience and their shared knowledge and expertise and and power. um, And that that really strengthens all of their movements. And this is all part of what you call transforming the trauma so that it's not continued to be transferred. Exactly. Raja, have you ever been threatened for your activism? Most of the time, actually, like in different uh, capacity, like, you know, there are many actors in Syria and like the Syrian government is only one actor, but like there are different actors and mm, to be living constantly like under the radar sometime, like 
not telling where you are and like wh what are you doing it's hard but also like to be in a continu continuous movement all the time it's difficult i think like uh, one one example that at one time I knew that like I am uh, on a list that I should be aware of and then uh, I decided that like for not more than one month I can stay in one place at one time and this is for one whole year it took me it took a lot of like effort from me and also like courage from my colleagues to take that on while I am managing the work that I'm doing and also it's not only about yourself but also about like the other people like you know while we are talking I know that some of my colleagues have been displaced today and I know because of the bombing in Idlib, I know that like some of them are worried that there will be another like war in or another attack in different places inside Syria. Some of my colleagues are still detained actually and by the Syrian regime and one of my colleagues actually is still missing from ISIS like he was detained by ISIS. So it's not like in this kind of situation it's not only about yourself it always become like the team the network that you are working with and the threat is continuous it's daily and how important is it for these women coming from around the world to connect here in colorado it's very essential i mean when we are working in syria in like specific local community when we are we can see it when women coming together on the provincial level they really benefit a lot from sharing information and like also just tell the story and tell the work that you are doing and like sharing knowledge. When we do it on the whole of Syria as well, it's very, very important because like there are different contexts, even in the same country, but there are different contexts. And when we are here in Colorado, I'm really looking forward to learning more like from the other women leaders around the world that like I'm really know that like they will give me the inspiration and also they will give me like many expertise that like I'm hoping that to transfer to my colleagues and also to the work that I'm doing and to do the same like share everything like I've learned from the work that I'm doing. And Marie in the few seconds we have left what do you hope will be achieved with this institute? Um I have two goals with the Institute. One is to really share evidence-based strategies for waging effective movements for social change. And two is to build a community of women activists that are all mobilizing to fight in their respective struggles around the globe. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Raja Altali is the co-founder of the Center for Civil Society and Democracy, focused on creating peace in Syria. Marie Berry is the director of the Summer Institute of the University of Denver. It's official. Tom's Diner, a Colfax staple in Denver, will likely be demolished and turned into high-rise apartments. For months, the diner has been embroiled in a debate over historic designation, but the debate ended last week when the group fighting to preserve it pulled out. Now, owner Tom Messina has the green light to go ahead with his original plan of selling the building to a property developer. But before the matter had been settled, we caught up with Tom at his diner to talk nostalgia and the 20 years he's put in. 
Why do you think people are so attached to the Steiner? I think it's just stories. Uh, first dates, met someone here, uh, had a great night out, ended up at Tom's Diner. You know, I think the Susan Vegas song. Uh, it's the old American and it has a nostalgia that's been, you know, put in so many movies. People would come in here and say, is this a diner from Pulp Fiction? But uh, it, it's just the, the appeal, the, the, the nostalgia of it. Do you feel like there's a difference between a historic building and the nostalgia that surrounds Tom's Diner? I do. I think there's a distinct difference. You know, when I drive around the area and I see a building with the stonework and built in, the, you know, the 1800s and it's these big old mansions, I say, now that's historic. Uh, you know, this is one of 29 restaurants. They were mass-produced in the 60s. This one is original because I cannot afford to fix it. This, I feel, is more about the nostalgia of just the people coming here and, and sharing a cup of coffee and having a good time. I think it's more about uh, it being a diner than it is being a building that, that people are drawn to. So it's the activity that takes place here to yeah, you that's the difference. Right, and, and the fact that I'm open 24 hours a day uh, allows an eclectic group of people, the Capitol Hill group of people that come in here and, and they get a kick out of seeing all the activity and, and the different types of people that come to this place. And it's, there's an energy here inside the building. What went into achieving this? For me, I took it over uh, 20 years ago and it was just being here, living it. That was it, it was exhausting. I cannot tell you the hours. I've slept in my office. I've covered every shift. I know all the ins and outs of the business. And that's the only way a small business owner ever makes it, is to live and breathe it. And since this has been in the news so much, have you gotten more business or have you seen any you know, change? Uh, as they say, all press or all, all news is good news or all coverage is good. Uh, there's definitely been, a, there's been an interest. There's been a pickup in interest. There's been an uptick. Uh, which is flattering, and a lot of people want to see what all the hubbub is about. Indeed, there has been more interest in the diner since the debate over historic designation began. On our visit, we met a family who was dining at Tom's for the first time. We did see some footage about Tom's Diner on the, the news. So we said, well, let's go check it out for ourselves and see what's going on in it. You know what I mean? The food, the service. We, we did come in. Happy to say it, love the food, love the service. Mia is awesome. I know there's a, a controversy right now. They should sell it. I know he wants to move on. We were just mentioning to Mr. Tom, maybe you can sell it to another person in the restaurant business and keep it flowing. <laughs> <laughs> and what about it to you makes it historic? Um, actually, the year it was built, you know, it's been here a part of Colorado for... Yeah, it used to be another restaurant, though. And my sister used to work in it. And then... I lost track of it because I moved out of town. But then when I seen that Tom's, I saw that's where sister used to live. But it's been here for a long time. How, was it, how much has it changed since you saw it as the old place? Actually, uh, it hasn't changed a lot. I mean, the color and decors are different. But the whole location stuff is still the same almost. And it's good. They're going to turn it into a parking lot, I understand. I think it's, yeah, residential areas. Yeah, that's what I heard on the news. And I actually, I talked to the owner. Like, I recognized him. And we said we should try to keep, have somebody else buy it from him. He said, if they give me the right price, they will, you know. But. And there are some places in Colorado, the state of Colorado, 
I think we need to cherish and we need to keep. That's Denise Aquino and her mother, Martha Waterbury. The family has lived in Denver for generations. We also ran into Amanda Terrian, a regular at Tom's Diner. Man, I've spent late, late nights here, early, early mornings. Drug myself over here when I was sick to get chicken. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a place for, for everyone every time of the day. Let's get back to our conversation with owner Tom Messina. Can you tell me more about the building plans that are lined Going up Going forward, uh, the developer has a beautiful project in place. It's a market value property that this area has not seen and I think is, is in need of to balance out the neighborhood. It's a good-looking building, and it, uh, it gives a nod to the Googie style. They have a Googie style awning. They have the stonework that you see behind you. It's not the normal, you know, cookie-cutter boxes. And is there any compromise you'd be willing to work toward, say, the diner stays, but under different ownership? Well, the problem is with this shape of building and the architectural element, it's hard to incorporate it with the new build. So the building stays and... and, and they build around it. That that doesn't feel like a compromise to me because, again, I'm losing half the property value. Uh, if someone is willing to come up and pay me market value and do what they and keep the building here, I'd be thrilled. Uh, and that would be a win-win for everyone. You've told press that this place is going to close whether or not the building sticks around? Correct. I, I'm moving on. I, I, I've done my due. Um, I'm looking for a change, like I said, and, and wanted to change it up. And that's what life is about, right? Change and, and going with the times and, and moving forward. And how will this change the neighborhood or how will it impact other businesses around here? Everyone, you know, is out for themselves, you know, and, they, uh, and everyone has their own agenda. I do not think that should stop progress. I think a change is what this area needs. I feel that a market value property high-rise on this corner facing the capital would be a boost to the area. I know if I was a business owner next door, I'd be extremely excited about it. It would bring in a lot of people into the area. I don't, I don't know how a diner on this corner or a restaurant on this corner would, would be any more than it is now. And this is, If they want to keep it exactly the way it is, Pay me the, the $4.8 million, and you can make it a museum, and everyone would be happy. Tom Messina owns Tom's Diner on East Colfax in Denver. After a preservation effort was abandoned, the building will likely be sold and turned into apartments. Messina mentioned earlier the popular 80s tune Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega. Of course, from what we can tell, there is no direct relation between the song and the Denver Diner. But the tune has yielded a lot of covers over the years, enough to fill an entire album called Tom's Album, which was compiled by Vega herself. The most recognizable cover is probably the remix by English electronic group DNA. Cruising down Federal Boulevard in Denver is a tradition that dates back decades. This weekend, cruisers plan to make a cultural statement by holding a formal celebration that even got a city proclamation. Denverites Esteban Hernandez has been reporting on what's led up to the event. Hi, Esteban. Hi, Avery. 
Cruisers will drive down Federal from Columbus Park, known locally as La Raza Park, to Barnum Park. The neighborhood is historically Hispanic. You spoke with a man named Ben Chavez who says this is a way to preserve Chicago culture, lowriding, and cruising. Tell me about his connection to this area. Uh, so Ben Chavez grew up in this predominantly Latino uh, area of Denver. He was born on the west side near 3rd in, in Galapagos. And uh, from elementary school, he was raised on, on Denver's the north side. And, and these are both historically Latino areas in Denver. Um, so he was surrounded by this culture of, of uh, you know, admiring cars and taking care of them and, and riding them. And one of the things he mentioned is that he, he uh, when he was younger, he would help his grandfather clean all these cars he owned. And he would always ask them about riding them. And he usually got a no. I mean, he, he wanted to go cruising and uh, about three years ago, he finally uh, got one of the cars. It was a Cadillac Calice, and um, he showed me the car a few weeks ago. And it's it's like it's, I mean it's a really gorgeous vehicle. It's really well maintained. Everything is stock. It's pristine. And when when you go in, you get that rich leather smell. Um, and it's so long. It's this really long, uh, great car that takes up. It almost takes up two parking spaces. Um, but you see that, you know, it's an example of like the, the pride that people take in, in um, maintaining their vehicles. And um, it's very obvious to him, to, too, that it's it's more than just a car. You know, it's a reminder of, of, of his family and it's a it's a connection to, uh, you know, to his grandfather. So it means a lot to him. Chavez considers cruising a rite of passage. He does. He was talking about how when he was younger, he, he started bothering his, his cousins, asking them to take him out for a cruise on feds. And um, it was something that he he wanted to do from from a very young age. He told me that he officially got started, I think, when he was in sixth or seventh grade. He told me he was finally able to convince them to uh, to take him out, essentially by uh, blackmailing his cousins, telling them that if, if they didn't take him out, he was going to tell their parents. <laughs> the community event actually came in response to a recent news report that a resident in the neighborhood was fed up with cruising. Chavez took this as a call to action. Uh, he did. There was a uh, there was a report on a local TV station that uh, featured a man who was upset with the cruising and all the noise from some of these cars coming on uh, on federal. And there was um, there was a pretty large community response to that. I mean, and and some of the conversation actually got pretty uh, toxic and nasty. Um, the the man who made the complaints, you know, he he posted something on Facebook and people were responding and sort of trying to call him out and 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 also tell him and let him know that this is something that's happened in this part of Denver for uh, for many years, and um, it basically led to at this meeting between a bunch of elected local officials. Um, all of them Latinas here in, in Denver representing the city, they had a meeting and they sort of discussed how they could, uh, you know, potentially address some of the some of the community concerns. Because after all, this man is a, is a resident of Denver, um, but also acknowledged that this is something that um, has a lot of, uh, you know, has a deep history and has a lot of value to, to the people here in uh, the city of Denver. And so the, um, this meeting sort of created this um uh, they established the event, you know, the formally the, the event that uh, will be happening on Sunday. In that event this week, the city council had introduced a proclamation that this Sunday, August 25th, is Barnum La Raza Cruise Down Federal Day. Why is this significant to have the city acknowledge this? 
it's uh, significant because it's it's a formal acknowledgement that this is an important part of Chicano culture in the city. And and really, if you talk to some of these organizers, to them, it's an important reminder that this is an important part of Denver's culture overall. Um, like you said earlier, this is a practice that dates back, you know, decades to the 1980s. And it meant a lot for them to sort of get this formal recognition from the elected body in the city of Denver, telling him that this is special to them, this is special to the city. And I actually, when it happened earlier this week, I got a text message from State Senator Julie Gonzalez, who's the wife of Ben Chavez, the, the guy who we spoke to a few weeks ago. And she, you know, just sent me photos of them sort of celebrating the, the proclamation and, and they're very happy with it and, and it's uh, they're excited that they're getting not just the, the formal recognition, but they're going to get a chance to to show everybody what this means to the community. And we should also say that you confirmed with Denver police, it is not illegal to cruise. That's right. It's not illegal to cruise down federal. Um, they do maintain a presence. Uh, they told us that they have a unit of officers patrolling the corridor on weekends. I mean, it's a major thoroughway in the city. Um, they do, uh, the, the pri- their primary job, as I understand, is they primarily look for quality of life issues like, uh, like racing and reckless driving. You also spoke with a photographer named Armando Ganero. He's been documenting the lowrider scene for the past five years. What's his take on this? I mean, he's, uh, he's originally from, from California. He came out here a few years ago. He started documenting it. He's really excited to also be a part of it. I mean, He's been posting it on uh, on his uh, personal Instagram, you know, the excitement for the community, people who are ready to see this happen. But it was also really neat to see somebody who, you know, is, is a transplant that um, it's become very evident that he's hanging around people who really, you know, who feel really strongly about this. And he's like starting to feel like somebody who's like, you know what, I'm part of this community now as well. And I want to support them fully. Um, So I'm sure we'll see a lot of his great photos coming out from that. This Sunday's event will include Aztec dancing and a blessing before the cruise down federal. I understand Chavez may try to make this an annual celebration. That's right. Yeah. So um, he that's one of the things he discussed was that he feels like this is kind of like a a little bit of of a trial run. Um, They had they didn't have necessarily um, a ton of time to plan this. Um, so he's hoping next year event, next year's event is is even bigger, and they have more time to organize something that's you know even larger. But um, I think this is this event is and is going to end up being bigger than than what he's predicting. I mean, he said he was expecting like a hundred people to show up, and I I would I'm willing to bet it's going to be a lot more than that. So, Esteban, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Esteban Hernandez is a reporter for Denverite, which is part of Colorado Public Radio. He covered the city's declaration that this Sunday is Barnum La Raza Park Cruise Down Federal Day, a tribute to the neighborhood's Chicano heritage. Up next, a new plan to protect wildlife in Colorado and a place that protects wolves is actually helping people, too. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado. It's 2019. Weed is legal. It's not that unusual to see cannabis yoga classes, guided cannabis meditations, even cannabis churches. Now, using cannabis to meditate or worship is not a new thing. Rastafarians have been using it for almost 100 years. But in this new world of legalization, what changes when we're talking about weed and religion? Find out on the latest episode of CPR's new podcast, On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado's population is growing and eating up wildlife habitat. Governor Jared Polis wants agencies to do more to protect key migration corridors. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood breaks down what's in the works. Animals like elk, deer, and bighorn sheep spend summers and winters in different places. They cross ranches, federal forests, and roads to get in between. And that causes an estimated 4,000 accidents a year in Colorado. Damage to vehicles alone, $80 million. Governor Jared Polis addressed a crowd of local leaders and conservationists Wednesday in Idaho Springs. An executive order directs state wildlife officials to collect more data. State transportation officials will include wildlife migration in future road plans. You look at what we're trying to solve by adding new wildlife crossings and corridors. It's an investment with very high returns for Colorado. Animals use those paths to travel and development makes it more difficult. With the state's population poised to increase 50 percent by 2050, that will mean a lot more fragmentation. Colorado Wildlife Federation Executive Director Suzanne O'Neill says now is the time to act. So if we don't protect these corridors in the face of what we have to expect as increasing development, demand for outdoor recreation and other activities, this irreparable treasure will be gone. That includes building crossings under or over roads. State transportation officials point to a half dozen such trails in Grand County that reduced collisions 90 percent. But Building them can cost as much as $1 million per crossing. Money is one challenge. Coordinating with private landowners is another. Leslie Allison is executive director of the Santa Fe-based Western Landowners Alliance. They're almost always last to be invited to the table and often don't have a seat at the table at all. Landowners don't like top-down mandates that restrict how they use their property. Ultimately, Allison says state leaders need to take into consideration local needs. There isn't one big solution uh, out there. The executive order directs state wildlife officials to deliver policy and legislative ideas to the governor by next July. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. There is a wolf sanctuary in southern Colorado that doesn't just help wolves. It's a refuge for humans, too. It's been two years that I've been wandering around trying to figure out where I fit. If you make the choice to come, you get the gift of being healed in whatever way that you need to be healed or learn in whatever way that you need to learn. Those are volunteers featured in a new documentary called Mission Wolf, An Experiment in Living. Kent Weber founded the refuge some 30 years ago. Hi, Kent. Hi. Mission Wolf is located up in the mountains west of Pueblo. Can you give me a sense of how remote it is and what it's like? Yeah, the idea was to get the wolves as far away from one thing as possible, and that was people. So it's 15 miles just on the roughest dirt road you can find. Uh, there's no signs up there. We don't want to be a roadside zoo. But we simply located a, a large tract of private land next to the National Forest, uh, fenced in huge areas, and we found by giving the wolves a sanctuary, a place where they could hide, instead of pacing around like you so oftentimes see in a zoo, the wolves thought it was fun to meet neighbors. And what kind of wolves do you take into your sanctuary? Yeah, that's one thing. Every wolf we have has one common thread. They were born in a cage. They come from zoos, wildlife parks, the movie process, expats, shelters. Uh, you can't save the world. We've turned away 10,000 homeless ones. So you're taking in wolves that 
essentially can't live on their own in the wild anymore, but you're giving them a wild place to live. Yeah, wild means free and independent. When you put wild in a cage, you kind of destroy it. But we're in an environment where humans are being told we've destroyed so much nature, you ought to protect it. Now you're being told buy a wolf as a pet, own a piece of nature. And we estimate there's over 3 million in cages right now. And the unique thing about a wolf, unlike a bear or a raccoon or even a coyote, those three are loners. You can rehab them back to the wild. But a wolf is so social that once they're born in a cage, they're doomed to life in a cage forever. And I just want to be clear, these are wolves that were not born in the wild, but they're also not domesticated. Yeah, they're what you'd call tame. Uh, domestic means they want to please you. Uh, a domestic horse wants to make you happy. A dog will let you slap it on top of the head all day. It's not because the dog likes to be batted on top of the head by a little kid's hand. We've taught dogs. That's what we like. So a dog is subservient. They want to please you. And a wolf is kind of like a bear. You could have a baby bear in your house for, what, six months. At about nine months of age, that baby bear is going to start getting independent. And kind of like a 19-year-old kid, don't tell me what to do anymore. They become independent. And as you're putting this mission together and as you're maintaining it, you don't actually charge admission for people who come and visit. It's a nonprofit and people can donate what they'd like. Tourists come for a couple of hours or they camp for a couple of days. But some people choose to stay for weeks and months and even years. And those long-term volunteers, what is the living situation like for them? The interesting thing is we tried to hide and it didn't quite work. And we found that happy wolves make happy people. And the next thing, so many people showed up to see the wolves. I couldn't get my house built. We couldn't get the fence built. And we finally said, that's it. We really don't own wild animals. They, it's sad that we have to own property. But we decided that's it. Just put the land in the wolf's name. We did that as a nature center under the name of Mission Wolf as a nonprofit. We tell people, if you can find us, good job. We show you the wolves. If you don't scare the wolves, you can spend the night. If you survive a week, you get some food. If you put in two months, you get a teepee to sleep in. So you weren't even necessarily seeking out this community volunteers that sort of sprung up no. around you. Mission Wolf's become an unintentional community, and I think that's where the magic is. Uh, if you put an expectation on people, they always have a difference of what reality is, and thus a disappointment. So we don't let anybody put an expectation on the wolves. You can't buy your way in there. You can't come there because you know something more than somebody. It's just, if you can find us, Cool. We'll show you the wolves. Some people like five minutes. Oh, my God, we're at 9,000 foot. There's no oxygen. There's no burgers. There's no soda pop machine. We're 10 miles from the nearest electric pole. So everything's solar powered. When you get people that work together for a common goal, they work all day and they thank each other and they support each other, which is so different than our world of competition that most of us are engaged in. But not everybody who decides to stay is an outdoorsy person. Here's a clip from the documentary featuring one of the volunteers, Will, a Yale graduate. I had to, like, ask people how to help me, like, not die. <laughs> and he's not kidding. Uh, we've never had anyone die at Mission Wolf. But what it comes down to is most of the folks have never pushed a wheelbarrow. They've not used a shovel. They have no clue what a clutch is. And to the folks, if you're going to live in the woods, you learn really quick that if you hold the hammer at the bottom, it swings harder. And it's a life about just simply surviving. So I've watched people so 
out of their element. And a young girl from Boston, never been in the woods, 25 years old, and woke up with a bear 10 feet from her teepee. Came up, of course, all excited, what are you doing? I gave her two frying pans. And she's like, you got to be kidding me. And I'm like, no. I said, just bang the pans together. And the bear took off running. Um, so if you learn animal behavior, we can avoid conflicts. But it is an eye-opener uh, to a whole world of people that are just uh, so deprived of nature, all they want to do is have an experience with it. So in a lot of ways, you're not just taking care of wolves. You're also taking care of people who have never been around nature this way. I've always enjoyed taking my college buddies when I was in engineering out into the woods, and we'd camp at the top of Mount Albert, highest point in Colorado, at New Year's, four years in a row. And that was in igloos, winter camping. And as I look back on all the experiences of my life, taking people out and letting them wake up, especially in an environment where you might not make it out of there if you don't have your faculties together. Um, it gives you a humbleness, uh, a sense of purpose. And I think that's what Mission Wolf provides today is an opportunity where anyone that is just motivated enough to find the place can do something. And I want to know more about how volunteers take care of the wolves. Yeah, the wolves really don't care about us. And you don't blame them. Uh, the majority of the wolves we've got were raised in other areas. They don't have any clue of social skills. And then when they mature, they can't be handled. And that's the people that call us every week. I got a wolf as a pet, tore up my house, tore up the yard. I don't want it. So those wolves, we give it a sanctuary, a beautiful place to hide. And the staff, we feed them, we water them. But if you're afraid of what feeds you, that's a stressful way to live life. So that's what the staff learn. If they walk up to a wolf, especially us guys, we're kind of focused. We tend to hunch over a little bit, hunter-like. That scares animals. Um, generally, the smaller person, the feminine side, is a maternal instinct that looks up and is more in their peripheral vision. So I find different people get complete different reactions from different wolves. And a wolf that might just love you might be scared of me, even though I take care of it. And a wolf that might just adore me might be afraid of you. And it generally comes down to our body posture. It sounds like a lot of what the volunteers are doing is feeding the wolves. What are the wolves eating? So the staff, for the most part, they feed the wolves a 1,000 pounds of meat a week. It's a grueling job. Everybody thinks it's so romantic to live with the wolf. It's a bloody mess. Um, and then, of course, cleaning up after the wolves is a job, building the fences. We've got almost 50 acres fence. That's huge. That's bigger than entire zoos for multiple species. Uh, and then we have a few wolves that, for whatever reason, they're think it's fun to be around people. They have no flight reaction. They aren't going to do what you tell them to do like a dog. But if you're calm with them, they're calm with you. If you're playful, they're playful. And so those are the special wolves, the ambassadors, as people call them, that represent nature. And uh, so over the years, we found that the staff probably's best job is taking visitors and getting them as close to a wolf without scaring a wolf and also allowing the visitor, the individual, to have a personal experience with nature. That's what says it all. I want to talk more about why people come and volunteer at Mission Wolf. The documentary includes a woman named Rachel, describing her tough childhood. I've always said that when my dad died, my mom died with him. My mom um, drank a lot and would give us to anyone that would 
look after us. She didn't like drinking alone, so she made me drink as well. So I was 13. But then I'd have to go home and then wake up, make sure my brother was okay, go to work, come back home, clean the house, do everything that a mother should do. My mom couldn't do it, so I stood up and done it. So me and my brother had to go around asking if we could have some food, because we had no food, which is a very degrading thing to do. What do people like this get from volunteering at Mission Wolf? When you get to look at an animal that's not coming to you for food, it's coming to see who you are, they look right through you. And it's a calming process. I've had people walk out and go, that wolf interrogated me. It scanned my mind. It read my mind. They look right at it. And the therapists go, the individual felt heard for the first time. It helps them release the trauma. And so we don't know what's going on, but we went out there to help wolves. And the long and short of it, it's helping people a lot more. Hmm. And the volunteers, do they form a community that support each other as well? You have to. <laughs> Our poor friend, Will, I uh, I didn't realize he had never started a fire before, much less he had to get one going in the morning because it's cold. And I've had a blast watching a lot of these people have eye-opening experiences of just basic survival. Things that they took for granted all of a sudden aren't there anymore. And I also want to talk about handling conflict because you mentioned that you have this unintentional community where you have people of all different backgrounds coming together. I'm imagining that sometimes there are points where there is conflict. I've probably been, I want to say, Papa to over a thousand kids that have shared up to a year to two years of my life, over 30 years living in her house, eating food. And I watch them start flirting with each other. I watch them start arguing with each other. And the thing is, I don't know that you're flirting with someone else, but the wolf tells me, oh my God, you're putting on a show for them and they're putting on a show for you and the wolf won't go near either one of you. They know instantly. So the next thing we started learning is so many people, they just want to interact with nature. And they're so stressed that if they put so much pressure on it, the wolf won't come near them. So a lot of our conflict resolution is learning basic behaviors. You show intent with your head straight up. You keep yourself in your peripheral vision. A good teacher walks in the room head up. So that's what we have little kids do with the wolves. They walk in and the wolves get out of their way and see him as a leader. Uh, conflict. The way to resolve conflict is not aggression. It's to ignore. A uh, good dog trainer ignores the dog at bad behavior. They don't reward it with yelling. Unfortunately, we're in a world that now reacts to conflict by yelling, and that just reinforces it. So by showing these two behaviors, intent and ignore, that can give a five-year-old leadership to walk in with the wolf. It's pretty fascinating to see. The next one is we show the staff, if you mirror somebody, you gain trust. If you mimic somebody, you stop motion. So when wolves are scared, we move with them. And all of a sudden, the wolf's like, what are you doing? Every time I turn, you turn, yep. And all of a sudden, the wolf stops and looks at you like, oh, yep, not doing anything. And the wolf stops. So it says, if you're calm, I'll be calm. And then the last one, which is so important today, is you play to learn. We're doing therapy and programs where we show play is not about trying to win a conversation. If you try to win a conversation with your spouse, you're not going to get anywhere. And this is such an unusual calling. How did you come to be taking care of a wolf refuge? 
I never liked animals in cages. I grew up in the woods, and when I learned there was more wolves in cages than in the wild, that was really sad. And then when I met one and the people couldn't handle it, no, don't kill it here, we'll take it, and met another friend that had one, and then we met some people that had uh, wolves bred with dogs, and they wanted it to look wolfy and act doggy. And what we started learning is, okay, we'll help this one. And I never wanted to train it. I never wanted to do anything other than turn it loose. Well, I knew it was just going to suffer. It'd be more humane for me to shoot them than turn them loose because they won't make it in the wild. Um, so that's the next best, give them a huge home. Um, and I think that's what started Mission Wolf, but it was in pessimism. I was broke. I had worked engineering and architecture, was feeding so many wolves. We were feeding 2,000 pounds of meat a week. And the back was broke. The bank was broke. I was like, this is, this is mission impossible. I was pessimistic. I was mad. In the lower 48 states, there was very, very few, less than 1,000 wolves in one state in Minnesota. And how do you get wolves back in the wild? I didn't think that would ever happen in our lifetime. How do you keep a wolf happy in a cage? That seemed to be impossible. So that's where the word mission wolf came from. We went out to just give the wolf as big of a space to run, get it away from people, give it as a natural home, feed it like it would in the wild, feast and famine. And the next thing we found is everyone and their brother wanted a part of it. So today we have 60 youth groups scheduled this summer alone. Each group will come up and live with us for three to 10 days. I'll have 60 kids camping in my backyard for the next three to four months. Uh, our staff swells up to over 20 staff. And now we have staff that coordinate staff. And so that's what happened is we didn't ask for volunteers. People started calling themselves volunteers. And today we have so many people that want to help. That's literally one of our biggest stresses. That's fascinating. Well, thank you so much for coming in today to talk about wolves. You bet. Kent Weber talking with me in May. He founded a wolf sanctuary in southern Colorado. It's a subject of a new documentary, Mission Wolf Experiment in Living, which is on the film festival circuit now. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.